Divine pattern for forgiveness. Divine pattern for forgiveness. God laid a message on my heart this past week and I could not get away from it. The more I studied, the more I was drawn back to it. And it has to do with the area of forgiveness. In Matthew, the sixth chapter, beginning with the ninth verse, I would like to have you read responsively with me through the 15th verse, through and including the 15th verse. Matthew, the sixth chapter, beginning with verse 9. I'll read the first verse and then you read the next one. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Give us this day our daily bread. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's all read the 15th verse together. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In the 12th verse, it says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors in the King James Version. Other versions take the actual Greek tense and bring forth the the thrust that is given in the Greek language. And it is, Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven as we have forgiven, or as we did already forgive, as we did already dismiss, as we did already put away those that have committed sins or debts against us. In other words, the premise there is, Father, I'm asking you to forgive me now because I have already, I have already, past tense, forgiven those who have trespassed against me. And therefore, we cannot even pray after this manner if we cannot say with what Jesus said here, Father, forgive me my sins or my debts because I have already forgiven others around me. A lot of times it's good for us just to get down to some very basic elements. And the basic element I want you to be looking at this morning is what does this word forgive really mean? We use words a lot of times, but we don't really know what they mean many times. Forgive means to pardon or excuse, to give up the wish to punish or to get even with, not to have hard feelings at or toward, to give up all claim to and not demand payment for. That's interesting. We will be thinking about these different aspects of forgive as I speak to you this morning. And the reason I feel like I should share it with you is because many people today in the body of Christ are going through life with their hearts filled with hurt and resentment and unforgiveness and retaliation and hatred and it's just continuously piling up in their lives and they sense that something isn't right. They know that this ought not to be here. So many times in my ministry, I've had people come and say, Pastor, I really have a hatred for that person, and I don't want to have that hatred. I really extremely dislike that person. They have hurt me. They have injured me, and I can't seem to forgive them. And when I hear those things, my heart is grieved because I know that there is a beautiful truth here that believers need to understand because once they understand this truth, it becomes a very simple thing for them to release them, knowing that if they do not release these feelings, that eventually these feelings will destroy them. 
These feelings allowed to persist within us will eventually destroy us from within. God has placed within his word a divine pattern that if we can pick up the, the, the steps of that pattern and begin to apply them in our daily experience, we can get release from any area of unforgiveness or resentment or hatred or retaliation or hurt. I believe that with all my heart. The first thing that we find in that is that God chose to love us even though we didn't deserve to be loved. For God so loved who? The world. Let me ask you something. When God decided to love this world, were we wonderful people already here? Did we deserve it? Or had we already proven our worth of being forgiven and loved? We didn't, did we? Now learn this pattern. We're talking about agape love, one-way love. When we're talking about the different Greek words, we won't get into detail, but there are different Greek words that one means a love that is reciprocal. You love me and I'll love you. And that's the basis upon which many people who call themselves Christians operate today. God's love is a one-way love, an agape love. And God says our love is to be a one-way love, an agape love. Not I'll love you if you love me, but I'll love you. I don't care what you do to me. I'm going to love you. And he says if you have my love within you, it will be a one-way love. Let me say the second thing here about this first thought is that love is not just an emotion. I've had people say, I can't love that person. No, let me reword that for you. You refuse to love that person. You choose who you will love. And if you say, I cannot love that person, you are in reality saying, in rebellion, I refuse to love that person. Because you and I can choose to love whomever we will. Now, if that is not so, then Jesus laid upon us an impossible task. Now, if you're feeling a resistance inside, if you're feeling something just tearing you up inside when I say these things, in the name of Jesus, plead the blood of Christ over you and say, by the grace of God, I will hear what the pastor has to say this morning from the Word of God. Because Jesus said you are to husbands, love your wives. Contrary wives, wives, love your husbands. That's a command, by the way. That's not a suggestion. Then he says, love your neighbors. How many of you have gone around trying to fall in love with your neighbors? Are you supposed to go around and start a relationship with all your neighbors to get into a love relationship with them? That isn't what he's talking about. I know it isn't because he also says, love your enemies. Now, I haven't seen too many people going around grabbing their enemies and kissing them saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. So he's not talking about that gushy, emotional type of thing. He's talking about something that is deeper and more meaningful and more lasting than that. Love is a decision. If there is someone with whom you are living or someone with whom you have contact that you say you cannot love, it is because you will not love them. You have come to a place where you said that is the place of no return. I'll never go back to that situation again. Now Jesus tells us that that is not divine love. Jesus tells us that is not his divine pattern. Now, when we still hated him, when we still had no fellowship with him, in fact, when we didn't even exist, the scripture says the first step is that God loved us and chose to love us even though we were undeserving of it. Secondly, God not only loved us, but he began to manifest that love to us. How? The word of God says, for God so loved the world that he 
gave his only begotten son. You can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. And if you really love someone, the word of God says it will manifest himself, even though they do not deserve to be loved. Even though I did not deserve to be loved, I'm talking about the divine pattern, even though I did not deserve to be loved, God sent his love to me while I was yet in my sin. He loved me. You see, I don't see how God could ever save something like that, how he could even have anything to do with something like it. God's love is not my kind of love. God's love is different. God can love me no matter what I am. The up and outer, the down and outer. The love is the same. And he manifested that love because he gave his only begotten son. The third thing is God had a purpose in this love that whosoever believeth into him should not perish but have everlasting life. His purpose was to bring us to himself that we might see ourselves as God sees us and repent of our sins and turn from our sins. You see, this is a beautiful principle here that we must learn this morning. When God brings a person to himself, he doesn't do it through beatings. He doesn't do it through clubbings. He does it, the scripture says, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. So God loved us when we didn't deserve it. He manifested his love to us by beginning to give to us. He gave his only begotten son and his purpose in it was that he could bring us into a place where we could have fellowship with him by being good to us. There's another example in the Old Testament I'd like to have you think with me for a moment about. In the Old Testament, there's a person by the name of Joseph that was a type of Jesus Christ. As the scripture says, the things in the Old Testament are just a shadow of those things which are to come. And Joseph, as you will remember, was the youngest son of Jacob. And he was loved of his father and mother. And his mother made him a many-colored coat. And he came out, you know, and Joseph was young and not too sensible at times. And he went out before all of his brothers showing them his nice new coat that none of the rest of them had. And then he came out and told them all the revelations that he had gotten, that God had shown him that they were all going to bow down to him, and they began to hate him. And they took him and threw him in a pit, dragged him out and sold him, and he was shipped over into Egypt. And in Egypt, Pontifer's wife tried to grab him and have him commit sin with her, and he would not do it. Then she lied about him, had him thrown into prison. Now, I don't know about you, but I've seen a lot of people that have been unjustly treated and have been sent to prison when they weren't guilty, coming out in the rest of their lives being filled with bitterness and hatred and revenge and retaliation. Haven't you? Joseph, when he came back out of prison, began to work for Pharaoh himself and soon was right under Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, I'm going to go off on vacation and I'm going to let you just take care of everything. You are the tut, the top, the top feather in the peacock's tail. Now, anything you say, do. Because God showed Pharaoh there's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And he said, okay, if God showed that to you, then he's going to give you wisdom how to get ready for it. So you take over. And in the midst of it, while the brothers were still over in Israel, they came over to Egypt to get some food, and Joseph recognized them. Now let me ask you something. Did they deserve anything from Joseph? They probably did. They deserved a good swift kick. He could have just said, guards... Why don't you just separate right from here up on each one of them? Would you do that for me? And it had been done in an instant. He could have said, listen, where is that dungeon that's filled with rats? I want them to go down there so that they'll have some playmates. Throw them in the dungeon. But the word says that when they came to Joseph, he immediately, his heart went out to them. 
And he began to not only give them the food that they needed, he began to give them little gifts, stick them in their sacks. And finally he told them who he was and he loved them. And later on they came and said, we, we hope you're not going to have revenge on us. I hope you're not going to try to hurt us now that father has died. And he turned to them and said, don't you understand? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Do you know something? Joseph knew a scriptural principle back there in the Old Testament that many saints today don't know. Do you realize that it doesn't make any difference what someone does to you? The only time it can be for evil is if you allow it to be for evil. No weapon that's formed against the child of God is going to prosper if we walk right with the Lord and every obstacle that comes becomes simply a stepping stone for the glory of God if we'll only understand the same principle that Joseph understood. Why should we allow bitterness and resentment and hurt no matter what someone does to us, no matter what they say to us, no matter how they treat us, begin to realize that this is God at work in my life conforming me into the image of Jesus Christ. I thank God for that piece of sandpaper over there. I thank God for that chisel over there. I thank God for that hammer over there. God's working on me. Satan meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I love you, brethren, and he loved them, even though they didn't deserve to be loved. That's godly love. Now, I don't know how many of you have been thrown in a pit, sold to the slave traders, taken into Egypt, and thrown into prison, and all those good things yet, but you still do not have an excuse to say, I can't stand that person. I don't love that person. Love is not an emotion. Now you may get emotional when you get in love. It's fun once in a while to see a guy see the right girl, you know, and all of a sudden he's just trembly all over and he doesn't understand why he can't sleep right and he's sweating in the palms and everything. You know, that's great. That's the outward expression of love, but love becomes a decision. Can I talk to you married couples for a minute? I'm going to talk to you a little later on in this, but I want to say it again. If you don't love each other like you once did and if you never did love each other, then you need to go back and ask God to forgive you. And because now that you're one flesh for life, you need to begin to develop as an act of your will a love relationship with that one that you are with for the rest of your life. You say, I can't. No, you won't. That's rebellion, and rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. There is nothing that can come into the life of a believer that you cannot, by an act of your will, say, I will, by the grace of God, obey God's word. Think of what Joseph went through there. You know, someone said, and I like this, it says it's a fine thing to have revenge in one's power, but it's a finer thing not to use it. You might be in a position to be full of revenge towards someone, but what a blessing to say, I've got that potential in my hands, but I'm not going to use it because God understands and knows every situation. I just commit this thing to him. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord, and I'll let the Lord work these things out. Instead, he gave gifts to them, he gave food to them, he protected them, he loved them. Praise God. Let's go on into the New Testament quickly with another illustration. I'm trying to get a pattern here for you. With Judas. Now, Judas was the disciple of the Lord for three years, and yet John spoke of Judas in the 6th chapter and the 70th verse, a very interesting statement about Judas the disciple. Jesus was speaking. Jesus said, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil. I have chosen you twelve, and one of you are a devil. Now, now, think a minute. Judas saw the miracles that Jesus performed, every one of them. He heard all the teaching and preaching of Jesus. He even went out with the other disciples and cast out demons. He even preached repentance. But there was a basic problem with Judas. Judas 
was desirous of earthly possessions. He wanted earthly possessions. In fact, you, if you do a real study of his life, it's a very interesting thing. He carried the purse for all the disciples. And I imagine he got very upset with Jesus when the rich young ruler came and he said, what must I do to inherit the eternal life? And he said, gave the different commandments and he says, I've done those ever since my youth. And he said, well, then take all that you have and give it to the poor. And oh, Judas stand there, ah, 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 that's great, give it, give it to the poor. That means it goes in my person and I can distribute it as I want to. And he turned away and went away sadly. And I imagine Judas almost thought, Jesus, why don't you get after him? Why don't you bring him back here? Don't you realize what you're letting go? That guy's probably got several hundred thousand dollars. Get him back here. Now this was evidenced later on when Mary came in and broke this ointment over Jesus there in, in worshiping him. And what did Judas speak up and say? To what purpose is this waste? That could have been given to the poor. That one little bit of ointment was worth one year's salary, someone said. Now she thought it was a very cheap little thing to do to just show in some small way her devotion to Jesus Christ. But what did Judas say, what's this waste? What's the purpose? Is there? We should have given that to the poor. That should have gone into my purse. John gives us some insight here in the 12th chapter in the 6th verse about Judas. He said of Judas, he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. He was a thief and bear the bag and bear what was put therein. He was just saying, boy, if we can get a hold of that, boy, if we could have just saved that one year's salary and put it in my bag here. And Jesus rebuked him. He said, leave her alone. And that seemed to do it. That turned the tide because right after that you find that Judas went out and he agreed to betray Jesus Christ. He hated Jesus because Jesus was not allowing him to accomplish that which was in his heart. He wanted to have earthly possessions. And so he betrayed Jesus Christ. Now picture yourself at the Last Supper. As best I can figure it out, Jesus was here at the table and John was here next to him, lying next to him, so that he could just lean back and lay his head on Jesus' breast and speak to him. You see, they would kind of rest on pillows on their side and he leaned back and put his head on Jesus' bosom and spoke to him. And evidently right on the other side was Judas because Jesus was able to turn to Judas and tell him something and none of the other disciples heard him say it evidently. Had they done it, I know Peter would have been over the top of that table and on him like ugly all over an ape. If he'd have thought for a minute that it was Judas that was going to betray him. But he said something to Judas and none of the rest of them heard him. But here Jesus allowed John, the one that he loved the most, right next to him. And on the other side he allowed Judas to sit next to him. We know that Peter was away from him because Peter motioned to John, John, ask him who it is. So Peter was not next to him. Peter, who was supposed to be very close to the Lord, was not. Judas was right next to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, don't think that Jesus didn't know that Judas was going to betray him because he stood up and said, now, one of you is going to deny me and one of you is going to betray me. I'm not going to be with you very much longer. I'm going to be crucified. And they were very upset over some of these announcements. Then Jesus spoke several words, and if you'll study those words sometimes, you'll see that each one of them was an encouragement trying to knock at Judas's door, getting him to open up and let Jesus come in and become Lord of his life. He would follow Jesus, but he would never open his heart and let him become Lord of his life. Now, let me tell you something. There are many people who will say they're following Jesus Christ, but when you come to the subject of forgiveness, they'll not open their heart. And finally, Jesus made the greatest gesture that the king of all kings could possibly make. He got up, took off his clothes and wrapped a towel around him and went around and bathed the feet. I, I just tried to imagine as I was sitting in my study here the other day, 
Here was Judas looking down at the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus was washing his feet very gently and would look up at Judas, look him in the eyes, and Judas was probably looking into his eyes saying, I wonder if he's aware, I wonder if he knows. Could he possibly know that I'm going to do this? And yet Jesus, knowing all things, knowing that, that, that Judas was a, a devil, went ahead and washed his feet and wiped them gently. He said, now the thing that I've done for you, I want you to do for one another. He tried to restore Judas there at that very last moment. Now, don't tell me that somebody's will is not involved. Jesus not only loved Judas, but he gave to Judas. He manifested that love to Judas. He poured himself out before Judas. He humbled himself before Judas, even though Judas had already agreed to betray him. And when he got up and was there at the table again, he just turned and quietly said, That thou doest, go and do quickly. And the scripture says, Satan entered in to Judas, and he went out, and it was night. Now, listen, please. You can tell me all you want to how much you and I have to suffer. You can tell me how many times you and I have been mistreated, how much you can't take it anymore, how much you have every right to hate someone, but let me tell you something, that's nothing compared to what Jesus did with Judas there. How easy it would have been for him to have looked up and said, you traitor, who do you think you are to betray me, the Son of God? Don't you know that I could call my Father and He would immediately send 12 legions of angels to come and protect me? And here you think that I don't know what's going on. You're going out. Not a word. Not a word. Please don't talk to me about us being mistreated. We don't know what it is to be mistreated. Hanging on the cross... Jesus looked up to his father with the thorns in his head, with the, with the nails in his feet and in his hands, having been lashed across his back, spit upon, his beard jerked out, beaten on the face, hit over the head with a rod. And he looked up and he said, Father, forgive them. He had already forgiven them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Having loved his own, he loved them, the scripture says, to the end loved those that did not deserve it. He manifested that love to them and then he tried through that love, manifested love, to, to restore them to himself. How about with Jesus and his relationship with you and me? I don't know about you, but he loved me before I ever loved him. He forgave me of so many things, there's no way to describe the mercy and the grace of God in my life. He provided salvation for me before I ever had fellowship with him, before I ever knew anything about him. He sent the Holy Spirit in His love and mercy to convict me of my need and of my sin and that He loved me. And the day came when I realized it was the goodness of the Lord that I needed in my life. I saw how good He was to my sister when He saved her and I invited Him into my heart and made Him Lord of my life. I repented of my sins and I asked Him to forgive me completely. And we entered into a fellowship at that time. But He loved me before he ever, I ever entered into fellowship with Him. He displayed His love to me before I ever entered into a fellowship with Him. He took the initiative. And today, as a Christian, if I sin against God, He loves me just the same. He hates my sin, but He still loves me. 
Again, there are so many people that think God is just waiting for that opportunity. You step out of line and I'll crush you. That isn't my God. As a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. And when I sin, I know that he hates my sin. I know he chastens me, but I thank him for that chastening because I know it's him in his love to me causing me to be returning to him. God chastens me because he loves me. Young people, remember that. If your parents chasten you, it's because they care for you. It's because they love you. And it's their way of expressing that love and concern for you that you might be what God wants you to be, what they know God wants you to be. And God, in His love, chastened me. Now, I, would, I did not have the fellowship with Him. I do not have fellowship with Him like I ought to when I sin because if I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear my prayer. But he still loves me, and he still deals with me, and he still reaches out to me, and he still woos and draws me to himself with that agape love. Even though I've sinned against him, even though I can't have that clear channel of fellowship with him, until I come and through the goodness of God dealing in my life, I repent again, and I come back into restored fellowship with him. He never stops loving me. Now understand that's important for us to understand when we're talking about a divine pattern of forgiveness. God never ceases to love me. I may not be able to have fellowship with him like I ought, but when I'm not in fellowship with him like I ought, he takes the initiative to bring me back to himself. He loved me before I was saved. He loved me after I was saved. He loved me after I sinned. He loved me after I had repented of that sin. God's love is consistent. Now, see the pattern? Let's apply it. Here I am, I'm a Christian. Someone has offended me. Many times when someone offends us as a Christian, it may have been years ago. The most pathetic thing I've ever seen is for someone to allow this to have happened years ago and to carry on through their life, never knowing what forgiveness is. There's one of two responses. I'll get you, or God will get you for that. One of the two. You do that to me, boy, God will get you. Ever heard anybody say that? God will get you for this. Well, I just can't forgive you for this. Number one. The first thing we must do as a Christian in God's divine pattern is to immediately, when someone does a wrong toward us, offends us, sins against us, the first thing we must do, even though they're undeserving, is to forgive, to pardon. First of all, number two, three, and four, to give up the wish to punish or even get even with, not to have hard feelings at or toward, to give up all claim to and not demand payment for. You say, well, Brother Webb, that's right. Well, look at Romans, the 12th chapter. Let's see if we're still in line with the Scripture. Romans, the 12th chapter, verses 17 through 19. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, are those Christians? Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Now God can say that, but you and I should not go around saying, God will get you for that. Our attitude should be one of love, manifest. Now not just to love them, even though they don't deserve it, but to manifest love to them. How long has it been since some of you have manifested genuine, divine love and gentleness to someone that you've had trouble forgiving for years? You say, well, if I do that, it doesn't make a difference what they do. I've asked you, what have you done? Have you shown divine love to that person? 
manifested it to them. Cause them to begin to see that even though they haven't changed, you still love them right where they are. Because God loves you and the divine pattern is his love flowing through you causes you to love them right where they are. Just as they are. Have you done that? I'll tell you something, that will change them faster than anything else. Go on to verses 20 and 21 now. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, keep the food away from him. Is that what it says? Feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Conquer evil with good. They have been mean to you. They have mistreated you. They have offended you. It says overcome that by doing good for them. Smith Wigglesworth, if I remember all the details, I'm not sure I got all the details right, but I remember one time him talking about the fact that he was not really in a right relationship with the Lord at one time while his wife was still alive. She went to church. Didn't make any difference what he did. She went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, always went to church. And he got a little upset with this because he thought she was giving too much time to the church. And so he said to her one night, Smith Wigglesworth now, the man who had a great healing ministry afterwards, faith ministry, said, I will not have you going off to church at night anymore. You stay home. You can go on Sunday morning, but not at night. Very interesting. In light of some of the teachings today, she said, Smith, you are my husband, and I love you as my husband. Jesus is my Lord. And he told me not to forsake the assembling of myself together as the manner of some is. I'll love you and do anything that you want me to do around the house here, but I must be found in the house of God because that's what God told me I'm supposed to do. You do what you want to, but I'm going to. He said, well, if you go out tonight, you go to church tonight, I'll lock you out. She went to church on Sunday night. She came back and it was cold out. She found all the doors locked. She sat down up against the back porch kitchen door, wrapped herself as best she could in her garments, went to sleep. She awakened the next morning and he opened the door for her and walked away saying nothing. Can you imagine what you would have done, some of you ladies? What would you have done had you come home and the door was locked? Some of you would have jumped in the car, burned rubber out of the driveway, gone up the street to your girlfriend or to your mother, and said, I'm leaving that beast. He's an animal. She got up, went in the kitchen, fixed him his most favorite breakfast, sat down and said, how are you this morning, sweetheart? I really love you. I hope we have a good day. Do you know something? That food went down like cockleburs. His favorite breakfast went down like, what did she do? She conquered evil with good. Before breakfast was over, he bowed his head and asked her to forgive him and asked God to forgive him and started back to church. Now I'm telling you, there's all ways that you can respond to that kind of treatment. Smith Wigglesworth's wife treated evil with love and with kindness and gracious didn't say a word about why did you lock me outside she just got up and went on serving him and consequently his whole life was turned around you see today though the, it's a little bit different I, I know of many homes where wives say boy he treats me like that it'll be a cold day when he gets another good meal from me shuts off the affection cuts it off doesn't talk to him won't have anything to say with him anymore let me ask you something. If you've tried that method, how's it worked? I imagine he's a godly saint now, isn't he? Huh? You've learned him. I'll bet he's at home reading scripture every day, trying it the other way, isn't he? Huh? 
Has, he, has it changed him? No. no. I've seen some husbands, oh, and the wife doesn't do exactly what they want to do. They cut off the affection, won't talk to them, won't give them any money, take their credit cards away from them, won't give them any car, keep them at home. That's not God's way. You're not going to win that wife that way. You're not even going to win a relationship that you can enjoy. You know, you can go on with that kind of relationship the rest of your life and be a witness neither to each other nor to the world. Let me just say something. If you do it that way, don't tell me you believe God's word to be God's word because it's not scriptural. Now, there's another thought in the scriptures that talks about forgiveness, and it's very, very interesting. In Luke, the 17th chapter in the third verse, Luke chapter 17, verse 3. Now here it says that if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. It brings in a new idea here, but I, I want to back up and say here it's talking about a brother or sister in the Lord, and it's already commanded us to love them. We are never to quit loving a brother or sister. You understand? But now here, there's another element in. If you know of a brother or sister, you remember last, the last conviction that said, go to them. We don't like to do that, but go to them, rebuke them, try to get them straightened out, try to get them to see the error of their way. And if they repent, then forgive them. This is talking about a different type of forgiveness. Look at Ephesians, the fourth chapter with me. The last verse. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. That's interesting. How are we to forgive? Completely, once for all, freely, just as God has forgiven you. How many of you know that if you really repented of your sins and confessed them to the Lord and asked Him to forgive you, that if you were to go back to Him tomorrow and say, that sin we were talking about yesterday, Father, that God would have to say, uh, I don't remember it. How many of you know that's true? How many of you know that God doesn't get historical with us? He buries them in the depths of His sea of forgetfulness, never to be remembered against us again. Do you want to know something? One of the great problems that married couples have today is they never practice that one verse. You start talking to someone, some husband or wife, and you know what the first thing they'll do? They'll start saying, Brother Webb, you have no idea. Why, way back there, she did thus and such to me, and then she did this, 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 then he did this, then he did this. You know what they've done? They've totally eliminated that verse from their life. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you, forgive. Put it under the blood. Don't let the devil carry that thing around in your mind. It'll eat your insides out. It'll destroy your relationship. It'll destroy your family. It'll destroy your home. It'll destroy your life. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Be followers of God as God forgives, you forgive. Completely, once for all, never again to remember all the hurts, all the mistreatment that you've received from your husband or your wife in the past. Put it under the blood once for all. Renounce resentment and bitterness in the name of Jesus. Don't let it eat you up. The Colossians, the second chapter, verses 13 and 14.